I'm a full force person. I'm all, you know, I'm in there. I've got a lot of energy and a lot of determination, but I started to pull back in, in all sense of the word. I stopped engaging in life. My brain was murky from, you know, a very elevated blood sugars, as well as lack of any type of nutrition and hydration. And so there were phases where my eating disorder was really bad. And then I would kind of rein it in. I dealt with it in secret for over 10 years. And when I felt that perhaps I might be caught or the cat would jump out of the bag, people would know, I ran away, both physically and emotionally. I would break up in relationships, you know, um, I would move to a different college. I just kept jumping around, going to one theater conservatory program to another. I, um, you know, I just ran and, and I would, you know, try to do a fresh start. Welcome to the Diabetes Psychologist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Heyman, and I invite you to join us as we talk candidly about the emotional challenges of living with type 1 diabetes. We'll give you actionable strategies to help you face these challenges head on, reduce your stress, and most importantly, live a full life without letting diabetes get in the way. Hey there, a quick question for you. Does type 1 diabetes make you feel stuck? Do you feel like type 1 limits you and makes it harder to do the things that you want to do? If so, I have a free guide that can help you get unstuck and become more flexible in your life with type 1 diabetes. To download your free copy, go to www.thediabetespsychologist.com backslash get unstuck. That's thediabetespsychologist.com backslash get unstuck. And be sure to follow me on Instagram at The Diabetes Psychologist for access to even more exclusive content. Hey there, welcome to The Diabetes Psychologist podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Heyman. My guest on today's episode is Asha Brown. Asha is the founder and executive director of We Are Diabetes, a nonprofit organization that she runs working with families, patients, and health professionals across the U.S., using her personal experience of recovering from a type 1 diabetes-related eating disorder to offer hope and support to those still struggling. Even if you don't have an eating disorder, I think you'll gain a lot from listening to this episode. Asha has a story of support, resilience, and community that I think everyone with type 1 diabetes could benefit from hearing. Asha helped me see people who are struggling to take care of their diabetes in a whole new light. It's definitely going to influence the way that I work with my patients moving forward, and I'm confident that it will impact you as well. Here's my conversation with Asha. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited that you're finally here and finally actually having a chance to chat. I know. (laughs) It was a long time coming, lots of reschedules, but we did it. So I want to start off by having you introduce yourself to my listeners and tell them a little bit about you, about your life with diabetes and how you're managing diabetes right now. Okay. So my name is Asha Brown. I've lived with type one diabetes since I was five. And how old am I now? I'm almost 36. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) So, Ooh, that's a good amount of time. Hmm. I am currently managing my type one diabetes with a lot of resilience but also uh, a CGM and an Omnipod, uh, Dexcom and an Omnipod. And, you know, it's interesting, even though I've had type 1 for more than 30 years, I just started on my insulin pump journey last year. It took that long. 
And how are things going for you right now? You know, that, I feel like anyone living with chronic illness, that answer can change from like one thing in the morning and then the afternoon, you could be in a completely different place. You know what I mean? Like, it's so funny. My last pod was fantastic. And the current one, I'm like, oh, I don't like it. And it's just, you know, it's like, it's an evolving thing. So I guess the, the answer to that is that emotionally, I think I've kind of distanced myself from it a little bit because I can't control what's going to happen next. So emotionally, I've gotten very separate from what physically has to happen and what I can't control. So the reason I have you on the podcast today is because I know that you have a long and interesting personal story with diabetes and with eating disorders. But I want to start off uh, hearing about your personal story with diabetes and with especially around your eating disorder and how that has impacted your life and the trajectory of your work right now. Sure. You know, Mark, what's interesting is my diagnosis was so uneventful and like non-exciting because my dad also has type one. So, you know, he saw the signs. I was eating like triple decker peanut butter sandwiches before bedtime and peeing all night long. And he was like, ah, hell, you know, and then I just, I do remember being at the endo with him and going home and keep in mind, this was early nineties. I just remember insulin shots, you know, insulin in the fridge injections. And I was like, oh, I'm just like my dad now. Okay. You know, the same year that that happened, I started my professional film career So I just, you know, my life was quite busy as a five and six year old. And I was so nonplussed, I suppose, by my type one until, you know, middle school and high school and performing on stage and recognizing. And and let's keep in mind also that this was before the beauty of Lantus and stabilized long-term insulin. This was NPH city. So let's keep that in mind. That, But, you know, having to eat snacks when I didn't want to and when I wasn't feeling like it and when no one else was and having a low blood sugar before going on stage, all of those factors led and culminated into this resentment and rebellious nature. And even though, you know, I, 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 I had a wise mind even at, you know, at a young age, I was just so done with it by the time I was, you know, 12 even. And you know, my mother has a poor body image and a lot of addictive personality issues. And my my genetic family history is rooted deep in addiction of all sorts. So I, you know, I started to develop coping mechanisms that were not healthy. And they all led me to develop a full-blown raging eating disorder by the time I was 15, both in the sense of just eating disorder symptoms that one would normally think of, as well as specific ones that only a person living with type 1 diabetes could do. So tell me more about that. What do eating disorders look like when people with type 1 diabetes? So uh, you, you specifically, but also, but also in general. It's very important for anyone listening to know that someone living with type 1 diabetes can have an eating disorder and have absolutely amazing type 1 diabetes management, right? Their A1C can be lovely, fantastic, right? Um, They can have an eating disorder separate from their diabetes concerns. However, it's a little more common for someone living with type 1 to have a murky relationship with their disordered eating and their type 1 diabetes. And that usually comes in the form of insulin manipulation. 
I've done this enough now that I get very careful with my words at this point because I refuse to be passing on information to somebody, a vulnerable mind listening who might take my words out of context and abuse it and develop their own set of eating disordered symptoms. So what I will also say is that I am the executive director of a nonprofit called We Are Diabetes. And if you go to wearediabetes.org, you can learn lots of information about type one diabetes and eating disorders. And it is the type of information that informs without teaching. Are there people with type Mm -hmm. one diabetes who are higher risk for eating disorders than others? You know, that's a great question too. And I wish I had a true answer for you, but I would have to say, I don't know. And I don't know if there is a pure certain answer to that because I had every perfect factor that set me up for a fantastic emotional mindset for living with type one. My father is incredible. Not only does he live with type one diabetes, he is a professional photographer. He, you know, he, <laughs> he's also a, a musician with albums out there and he runs the art department at a, at a college. I mean, he's just, he does everything and he manages his diabetes. He's had it since 1970 and his mindset is fantastic. So me growing up with that, I, I should never have fallen into the deep, dark pit of despair that I ended up falling into, but I did. There's no magic preventative measure or like set of circumstances that I think that I believe can potentiate or prevent this. It's, it just happens. Unfortunately, there's not enough understanding of that. You know, there's not enough empathy with providers working with people living with type 1 diabetes to recognize that this can happen to anybody living with type 1, men and women at any age. You know, I have clients that are over the age of 60, as well as clients that are under the age of 15. You know, it just happens. How did your eating disorder impact your life? And at what point did you know that you needed help? You know, it's funny because I think anyone living with a long-term addiction There's so many years where we refuse to acknowledge that it is impacting our life, right? We we think we've controlled it or that we've got it covered. (laughs) It's just a little bit of an addiction. (laughs) But, you know, what happened to me is I, I'm a full force person. I'm all, you know, I'm in there. I've got a lot of energy and a lot of determination, but I started to pull back in, in, in all sense of the word. I stopped engaging in life. My brain was murky from, you know, a very elevated blood sugars, as well as lack of any type of nutrition and hydration. And, you know, I lived with this, with my set of symptoms and they kind of evolved over time. So there were phases where my eating disorder was really bad and then I would kind of rein it in. But I, I dealt with it in secret for over 10 years. And when I felt that perhaps I might be caught or the cat would jump out of the bag, people would know, I ran away, both physically and emotionally. I would break up in relationships, you know, um, I would move to a different college. I just kept jumping around, going to one theater conservatory program to another. I, um, you know, I just ran Um, and, and I would, you know, try to do a fresh start there were some very specific things that happened when I was finally at this level of performance where I was working at one of the most nationally recognized theaters in the entire country. 
it was my dream job and I got it. I was performing on stage nine times a week, you know, um, or during the weekends there were matinees and evening shows. And you know what? That's, I, you know, I, and I was a triple threat, you know, musical, theater, dancer, singer, actress, all of that. My body could not handle that because I was very sick. So I missed three shows and you can't do that as a union professional actress. You can't do that. And the excuse that I gave was that, you know, my diabetes was, you know, my diabetes, right? Because no, people who don't have type one go, oh, or diabetes, right? But you can't do that. You can't, you can't do that and then hope that the next show is coming. And so when my contract for this dream job was over, I was supposed to go to the next show with this, with this amazing theater company. And they didn't renew my contract because they said I was not consistent and they couldn't rely on me. And I realized that I had done that. And, and I mean, of course, there were other shows to follow, but that hit me really hard. I realized that I was in complete denial of how much this has affected me. The dream that I had worked so hard to get to, the auditions, you know, the, the, you know, the work, I was ruining it for myself. And that's when I started to truly consider going to treatment. Before we dive into talking about your diabetes, I want to go back to something you said a minute ago about addiction, because you've compared your eating disorder to addiction several times. And I would like you to talk a little bit more about that. Sure. You know, as, as you were just speaking, I was vaping an e-cig because I'm an addict. You know, I mean, I, I don't take that word lightly, but I do have an addictive personality. And, you know, all my therapists have you know confirmed that. And I, again, I come from a long line of people who have dabbled and lived in addiction their entire lives. I frequented a lot of different types of therapeutic support, even before I fully committed to getting better. You know, I was going to AA meetings, you know, OA, just, I, I tried everything. I read all the books. I am deeply now, I'm, I'm still deeply curious about the, just all of the deep connections in regards to our brain and someone who has an addictive personality and how they are able to heal or at least find a life that is less detrimental. And so I think a lot, some, some people living with type 1 diabetes and an eating disorder, they don't associate it as an addiction, but I find it easier. You know, I, I, there's so many different similarities that I see in someone else that has any other type of addiction, whether, you know, be drugs or what have you, you know, drinking. There are behaviors that are used for coping and avoiding and they become overwhelming and prevent us from living a full life. Thank you for that answer. That's really helpful. So tell us about We Are Diabetes. What prompted you to start We Are Diabetes? So here's what's interesting. I never thought I'd be doing this. Once in a while, I'm like, oh, this is not what I thought I'd be doing with my life. Again, I mean, I, I don't have time to perform now, but that was what I did for the first couple of decades of my life. But when I was in treatment, my husband, who I like to call him an IT magician, but that's not what he is. And that's not the title of his job. However, he knows how to do all things, information, technology, computer stuff. He bought me the domain name, We Are Diabetes, because he thought maybe I'd want to write a blog about my experience, which he didn't tell me about for the first year. But it meant a lot that he was already thinking, oh, I'm going to get a little emotional now, Mark. It meant a lot to me to know that he already was like, well, my wife's going to get better. She's going to beat this. And then she's going to write about it. How's that for support? <laughs> but when he presented this domain name to me, 
I looked at him like, I'm, I'm not a writer. I'm a talker. I don't write blogs. So it just kind of sat there. And I had work to do. And much like with AA, they, you know, they suggest that you should have two solid years of recovery, you know, before you go out spouting support or thinking that you can help others. And I definitely took that. And I, I refriended myself, you know, and I, I figured out who I was again. And that was, that was fun. Weird diabetes happened very organically in the fact that I recognized not a lot of information out there. And there wasn't a lot of information that was offered in a, in a nice package that was clear and concise for not only someone who might have this eating disorder, but also clinicians, therapists, families, boyfriends, girlfriends, anyone like they're just, I was kind of appalled. You know, I'd found studies that were published in the eighties talking about this eating disorder. And yet there was no place that really housed this information in a way that was easily accessible. This was not a world that I knew how to do, but my husband helped me create We Are Diabetes. And at first, the intent was that it would be an informational resource place. Nice, easy to read. Here's some information. Oh, you need a resource? Go here, go here, click that. But I meet people and I talk and that's what I do. That's just what I do. That's my, that is my joy is connecting with others. And I just started finding people who needed help. And I just got really involved with it. And that's how We Are Diabetes evolved into, you know, a peer mentoring, uh, coaching type of resource. If someone was part of your organization and getting support from you, what does that look like for them? So there's lots of options. And that's what's cool. That's what that's where WAD is today. And I say WAD because it's just a lot easier to say. What we offer now is a, a free mentorship program. And that is available for anyone who has already set up a treatment team meaning that they need to kind of have, you know, a a, a good, solid relationship with their endocrinologist. They need to be working with a therapist. And then they also have access to one of our mentors. Most of the WAD mentors are past clients of mine. I've seen them change their own lives. And it's really, really cool to have them as a volunteer staff member at this point. And that program is had a little bit of a stall because of COVID, but we're going to be moving forward. Thank you to Beyond Type 1 for their ongoing amazing support and believing in us. So that has been a big programming offer. The other thing is that there is private coaching that someone can do with me. When someone reaches out to me, I take as much time as is necessary to figure out what they need. They may first need to go to treatment and they may need to be handheld through that process as well. You know, they may have already gone to treatment and they may now be out and feeling lost about how to apply the skills that they have just learned into real life. At this point, now that I've been doing this for many years, I'm ready based on what somebody needs to be able to guide them to the next step. So what's the difference between treatment and mentoring and coaching in your program? Good question. So treatment is not something that we are diabetes does at all. We are not doctors. We are not medical professionals. We are just people who live with type 1 diabetes and have had eating disorders. So we do know about that quite a bit. And we are peer mentors. Think of us as like a big brother or big sister. What we also can do is find someone, a treatment program that they can go to for that baseline foundational type of recovery. And, you know, the coaching is something that is very, it's, it's again, it's a one-on-one specific relationship that someone might build with me. 
And it's for people that really need that daily ongoing type of work. I am so grateful that I have a life where I can do that. Talking to people and helping them set reasonable goals and seeing them rebuild their self-confidence is the most amazing feeling in the world. It is so much better than any type of applause on stage or recognition. You know, like I never knew, I never knew I could be addicted to, to doing this in a way, but I'm very grateful that I have the ability to do this type of work. That's so awesome to hear. How can someone who is interested in services with you guys get in touch? I, so the, hopefully, you know, weirdiabetes.org, you can share a link to that. If you go to the contact button, we have options. We have some different types of assessment surveys that people can fill out based on kind of where they're interested and headed. We've done the best we can to try to make the website pretty clear. But, you know, if you go to our website, that's the best place to start. Poke around. Okay. And I'll make sure that I put a link to that in the show notes. So a couple more questions. What's the biggest lesson you've learned working with people with eating disorders and type 1 diabetes? I think for me, what I'm learning, especially in the past couple of months, is that every person's journey and process is going to be so different in regards to the steps they take and how long it takes. And there is no room to compare one journey to the next. I think that lesson is true, not only with eating disorders in your work, but also in people's diagnosis and journey with type one diabetes and their journey to acceptance of the condition. That is so absolutely, that's such a good lead in and perfect because it's true. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people that have lived with type one just as long as I have, who don't let their coworkers in about it, who don't openly want people to see their diabetes devices. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it is a personal journey and we can't push people or expect them based on how long you've had this or that, that you should feel comfortable with it. And you're right. It's the same thing. But at the same time, the journey to acceptance is similar in the sense that it's a journey away from avoidance. You talked about your eating disorder and you using your um, insulin manipulation as an avoidance strategy. Other people use other Mm -hmm. really creative avoidance strategies to not really internalize the fact they have diabetes. And in my experience, that's one of the biggest challenges that and roadblocks people to living full lives um, that are flexible with diabetes. That I love, you're right. And, and, and I mean, everyone's different, but there's, there's so many similarities here in regards to someone's personal resistance to, to being open or moving forward with something. That comes into play in lots of different areas, whether it's a matter of sharing with coworkers or being willing to set, have your blood sugar be on the lower range or, you know, starting an insulin pump. Those could yeah. all be avoiding strategies that people use and not saying that all those things are unhealthy all the time. It's in the context that matters here in terms of figuring out whether or not someone's avoidance behavior is functional or whether it's healthy or whether it's unhealthy. Right. Or if it's kind of preventing them from feeling like they're really living their life, right? Like they're really, truly engaging. And that's our goal for everybody with type 1 diabetes is to be able to engage with your life with diabetes being along for the ride, as opposed to trying to push it away in whatever way you do. And, you know, and I mean, that really interrelates to how food and, you know, nutrition and bodies should, should be part of it too. It's Mm -hmm. attention must be paid 
because we live in these bodies. But we cannot be uh, hyper-focused and we cannot allow, you know, the, the concept and, and the effort of food to become so overwhelming that it is become our whole world, you know? And I think that's where it gets very tricky because <laughs> with an eating disorder and type 1 diabetes, you can't ignore nutrition facts with food. It becomes a, a dance of acknowledging the focus, but not letting it become an overwhelming focus. So my last question that I ask every guest who comes on my podcast is, what is the best piece of advice you've ever gotten about how to stay mentally healthy with diabetes for yourself? It's less of a specific piece of advice, but mm -hmm. I'm going to talk about how I have witnessed my father address stuff. You know, I remember so many times <laughs> him being in the kitchen, and this was before cell phones, right? Sitting on hold, <laughs> waiting for the pharmacy, <laughs> waiting to have the phone call answered at the clinic, right? And he did not just sit. He, thank God we had cordless phones back then. He had the phone cradled and he would multitask and he would get things done. You know, uh, he would, he did a lot. Of, he'd take, what was it like sandpaper that you use for like construction projects? And he'd sand down his calluses on his fingers. But he was also a guitar player, right? So he had calluses. Sometimes he'd make a stir fry, you know, as he was sitting on hold. And he just, he got it done. There's all these stupid things that you have to do when you live with chronic illness, especially in the world that we live in with all these Oh my goodness, you know, hurdles that we have to jump through to get our devices, to get meds, to talk to a doctor, right? But instead of him letting it ball up and become super overwhelming and being like, oh my God, and I haven't done this and I haven't done that. He just got it done. And he found a way to get other life minutiae done at the same time. And that's one thing that I was so impressed by. And it's something that I have, you know, taken and there's a lot of annoying parts of managing, you know, chronic illness. You have to just get those things done so that you can go enjoy your life. To sum it up, it sounds like he was able to hold both of those things at the same time, the annoyances and his life and move forward yeah. together with them. Yeah, he did it with so much grace. He does it with so much grace. He's still here. <laughs> and it was, that's really the biggest lesson that I've ever, thank God, been able to kind of take with me. I think that's a great lesson for us all. Well, Asha, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. This was an awesome conversation and I'll make sure that I leave all your information in the show notes so people can get a hold of you if they need to. Thank you. Every time I talk to Asha, I learn so much and I get so inspired by the Type 1 community. Asha's passion for advocacy and for supporting others in the Type 1 community is so inspiring. Eating disorders are a lot more common for people with type 1 than I think is commonly known. And for people with type 1 diabetes who don't struggle with disordered eating, I think they can be a little bit of a mystery. The fact that we're even talking about this shows me that there's so much more to the story than meets the eye. And a lot of the lessons learned apply to everyone with type 1 diabetes, whether or not you have an eating disorder. I think Asha did a great job at talking about disordered eating in our conversation. And I don't have a lot to add that she didn't say. But what I want to spend some time talking about today is what I took away from our conversation and what I think we can all learn from it. To start off, when I asked Asha to tell me about how she's managing diabetes right now, her answer caught me a little bit off guard, but it was really enlightening. 
instead of telling me how she's using a CGM or a pump or injections to manage her diabetes, she said that she's managing diabetes with resilience. And isn't that the goal for all of us in order to be mentally healthy with diabetes? Hearing Asha talk about type 1 diabetes and eating disorders in the context of addiction was eye-opening for me. And putting these struggles in this context will absolutely help me in my work. The root of most unhealthy behavior in diabetes is a deep desire to avoid uncomfortable emotions, to avoid uncomfortable situations, or to avoid uncomfortable thoughts. This is the case for people who have disordered eating or for diabetes burnout or anxiety. It's really universal. And we each have unique behaviors that we use in order to avoid these challenging experiences. People with disordered eating may use insulin manipulation as an avoidance strategy. For people with diabetes burnout, they may ignore diabetes or push it under the rug and not think about it as their avoidance strategy. And people with diabetes-related anxiety often try to avoid the thing about diabetes that brings them the most anxiety, whether that's a low blood sugar or a needle or data from their CGM. And if there's one thing I've learned in my work, it's that people get really creative with their avoidance strategies. But it can be all too easy to become addicted to this avoidance. And if you have a predisposition to addiction, it can make it even more challenging. Changing our behavior is a whole lot more complicated than just doing things differently. If it were that easy, none of us would have any unhealthy behaviors. But looking at some of these coping behaviors in the context of addiction can give us some insight as to why changing them can be so challenging and how it can be all too easy to get stuck in these behaviors and to have a hard time getting unstuck until a crisis hits. The other interesting part of the addiction metaphor is how recovery from addiction oftentimes requires ongoing support. Think about programs like AA or NA. Oftentimes, the same thing is true for people struggling with the emotional aspects of diabetes. If we think about the avoidance behavior in the context of addiction, we can see how developing new coping strategies can benefit from ongoing support. The bottom line is people with diabetes oftentimes feel like they're out of control and they'll go to some great lengths to try to regain control. These unhealthy behaviors, whether it's insulin manipulation or ignoring diabetes, are all attempts to regain control of our emotional state. And so often we get addicted to that quest for control and we'll do anything we have to do to try to find it, even if finding it is not even a possibility. But I also found an awful lot of hope in my conversation with Asha. I know that so far we've been talking about addiction and control, and these things can feel really dark. But talking to Asha gave me a sense of hope, both from her own story, but also in the work that she's doing. It's no secret that sometimes diabetes can send all of us to a pretty dark place. But hearing stories of recovery shows me you can find light in the darkness of diabetes. If you're struggling now, it can get better. And Asha's story is a testament to this truth. The other thing that gave me a lot of hope in my conversation with Asha is the power of community. One of the key drivers to things being able to get better is the diabetes community. Hearing about We Are Diabetes and how people with diabetes are dedicated to making the lives of other people with diabetes better is just so exciting. This is one way the diabetes community is strong and so supportive. 
and it makes me really proud to be a part of it. Before we wrap up today, I want to give you my four key takeaways from this episode. Takeaway number one, you are not alone and you don't have to hide. Asha talked about how she hid her struggles with diabetes from everyone in her life for over 10 years. And it wasn't until she lost her dream job that things came to light. If you're struggling with diabetes, I want to encourage you to get support from friends, family, or professional. And I want you to know that you're not alone. Key takeaway number two, there's almost always more to the story. When we think about disordered eating behavior and diabetes in the context of addiction, it shows it's a whole lot more complicated than it seems. And this is the case for many struggling with diabetes. So let's try to be empathic with each other and recognize that even though it seems like people should be managing their diabetes well, if they're not, the reasons are usually a lot more complicated than they may seem. Key takeaway number three, it's okay to want control, but it's also okay and sometimes necessary to accept that there are some things with diabetes that you just can't control. And finally, takeaway number four, there's always hope with type 1 diabetes. And the key to that hope is the type 1 community. I know I've said it before, but I'll say it again. The type 1 community is amazing. And if you're not active in it, I would really encourage you to become more active. If you need help, send me an email and I'd be more than happy to connect you with people in your community who can be your support and your hope in your struggles with type 1 diabetes. Before you go, can I ask you a quick favor? If this podcast has been helpful for you, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a five-star rating and post a review on iTunes. That helps me get the word out about this podcast so as many people as possible with type 1 diabetes can benefit from it. I always love hearing from my listeners. To get in touch, you can find me on Instagram at the Diabetes Psychologist or send me an email to mark at thediabetespsychologist.com. You can also find me on the web at thediabetespsychologist.com. That does it for this episode of the Diabetes Psychologist podcast. Be sure to tune in next Thursday for a brand new episode. Bye until then. Thanks so much for listening. For more resources, you can visit www.thediabetespsychologist.com and be sure to sign up for the email list for access to exclusive content. I'm Dr. Mark Heyman and tune in next time for the latest episode of the Diabetes Psychologist Podcast.